Hey, this is Eric from Catching Light. Hey, this is Hemp. Hey, this is Glenn. Hi, I'm Steve-O. Hey, this is Drew Hines with Hindsight Imagery. This is Matt Callahan and DigiMatty Photographic Services. Hey, this is Jason, and welcome to Tales from the Pit. Welcome to Tales from the Pit, the behind-the-lens access for concerts and photography. Today, we have a legendary special guest, Mr. Lou Brutus. Lou, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. I hope you guys are doing okay through the uh, rather weird holiday season we seem to be having. Yeah, yeah we're doing all right. It's bizarre, that's for sure. Um, usually, we get started with some sort of history of how you got in the industry. Could you kind of give us a little bird's eye view of how you got started in the industry? Sure. I mean, uh, I know you guys primarily talk about photography, but uh, my first uh, real uh, introduction has been through my radio work and my music media work. And, um, you know, I began on a college radio station, Brookdale Community College in Lincroft, New Jersey. We called it UCLA, the uh, university closest to the Lincroft area, uh, but they had a great radio station and uh, a great radio program. And I was there and I lucked into an internship at uh, what is still one of the biggest rock stations in the United States, WMMR in Philadelphia. Uh, it was kind of cool because where I grew up um, in central Jersey, English town, kind of the middle of nowhere, but it was only an hour to New York and an hour to Philadelphia. So we got great radio stations, rock radio stations from Jersey, New York, and Philly. We were also within an hour of all of these different concert markets. So I could, you know, one night be at Madison Square Garden or the Palladium in New York City or at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, or Convention Hall in Asbury Park or the Spectrum or the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. So uh, by the time I was like 13, 14 years old, I was attending several concerts a week. And uh, I've been working multiple jobs since I was a kid, mostly early on, just so I could support my concert habit. And uh, uh, I managed to see a whole lot of the greats when I was just uh, a little kid. So anyway, I progressed into the radio thing. And uh, from there, through my many years uh, doing radio, and it's 40 years, I think, <laughs> since I started my internship at MMR. Um, you know, I'm now uh, with uh, Sirius XM going on 20 years. And of course, my uh, nationally syndicated show, The Weekend Edition, Hard Drive, we're doing that. It will be 25 years come 4th of July, should we make it that far. And uh, we have a weeknight companion show to it, five days a week tonight, Hard Drive XL. And that's on like 40 to 50 radio stations around the country. So uh, it was through that that I started to get access to do photography. And uh, that includes uh, not only the music related stuff that I do a lot of, but I've been an on-field major league baseball photographer for the last, you know, 10 or 11 years. And uh, as a big uh, Mets fan, as you can see, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, a lot of fun. Uh, a funny thing that that comes out of that, by the way, before we really get started here is when I'm, I'm traveling with a band, they're like, dude, what are you doing here? You've seen us a hundred times. You could be at Yankee Stadium taking pictures of the Yankees. 
and and then I'll be like, uh, you know, shooting the Mets and the Nationals and the ball players will be like, dude, what are you doing here again? You could be out with Metallica or the Rolling Stones right now. What are you doing here with this crap? You know, everybody thinks the other guy has the uh, the cooler gig. So uh, anyway, that that's a that's an overview. And uh, of course, earlier this year, I put out um, my memoir, Sonic Warrior. My life is a rock and roll reprobate tales of sex, drugs and vomiting and inopportune moments. And that is filled with sort of um, colorful anecdotes. Uh, from the uh, rock bands and uh, all the uh, the music stuff that I've done, going back to when I'm a kid. So yeah, I don't sleep. I just work seven days a week. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm tired I have now, some club soda. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the book uh, I actually I purchased the audio book just to hear it through your perspective because when I read it, I obviously was hearing your voice. I was like, well, why not just actually hear your voice? Uh, so the book actually has so many crazy stories. I'm sure we'll talk about them in a little bit. Uh, and I highly recommend the audiobook just because of your, your, the way you deliver some of your stories in general. Uh, but I, I'd like to go back a little bit and, and sort of talk. You, you kind of gave us real brief how you got into radio, but tell us how you got in, involved with photography. I, it's, it seems like you were the right person at the right place, but was photography already a passion or you just picked it up because you had to? You know, um, it, it's kind of weird the way it progressed because the first time I got like a, what I would consider a real camera was in the mid 1990s. And I was living and working in Chicago, which is uh, it's the great Americans. Um, and uh, I, I've always been interested in lighthouses. I love visiting lighthouses and um my wife had gotten me a couple of, uh, you know, like Barnes and Noble coffee table books, pictures of lighthouses kind of thing, you know, get them in the bargain bin for five bucks and they're filled with really beautiful, excuse me, pictures of lighthouses. And I thought, man, I really want to learn how to take pictures like that. So uh, I ended up with a, a Canon EOS Rebel film camera uh, pre digital. There were still there were digital cameras around by them, but nothing really worth owning. Um, and uh, I started taking pictures of uh, lighthouses, which I'd started a little bit before that. But this is the first time like, I got what I would consider a real camera. And um, from there, it sort of progressed. I, uh, I got a digital camera uh, a few years later that was a, a Nikon D50. And I just wanted to take better lighthouse pictures. But then sometimes I, I would take the, the camera to concerts. And uh, some of the artists that, that I knew fairly well that I had good rapports with uh, started offering me, uh, you know, slots in the pit. And, you know, being the dumbass I am, I'm like, nah, I don't feel like doing that. Nah, it's too much work. And uh, frankly, I, you know, I didn't think the equipment was quite that good enough. And, and I had no idea really how to do that kind of photography. It was challenging enough for me to take pictures of, uh, of lighthouses. And, you know, you're out in the middle of the day and it's very well lit. So it's a relatively, relatively easy thing to do. But um, it was on, I think the first, I want to say Stone Sour tour. And um, I had brought a camera just to, you know, backstage shots, you know, hey, here's a picture of us getting an interview together and that kind of thing. And I think it may have been Jim Root who was like, dude, take some fucking pictures. Just go out of the, <laughs> go out of the fucking pit whenever you want. Just take pictures. And uh, and so I did. And, and a few of them miraculously, even though I had no clue what I was doing in terms of shooting concerts, I, sh I, I shot a lot. 
physically a lot of pictures and and a few of the and i mean a few of them came out okay and uh you know i i sent them to the guys in the band and i thought wow this is really kind of cool i would like to learn how to do this better so i i did some reading and um um you know kind of looked at the formulas for how people shot and their settings and all that and uh then i i you know tried to be very tenacious about it and and learn as quickly as i could and really devoted a lot of my uh, uh what little extra time i have to uh to learning it um a few years after that, um, I, I uh, started going to see a lot more baseball games. And, and I always, uh, and, and this ties into the photography thing, I'll, I'll come back around to it, but um, I've always followed my Mets very closely. I always kid people, there are only three things I need in life, my family, music, and baseball. But um, the year, the season after my dad passed away, I really dove back into baseball like I had not since I was a little kid. And I mean, I was looking at the uh, the stats every day in the newspaper and uh, basically following pitch by pitch, which I found out later is a fairly common reaction to losing the, the second, the last of your parents, people look for something that sort of fills the void and has been with them their entire lives. And for a lot of people, very common, they, they really dive into baseball. So uh, that season, I think this would have been the 2007 season, I started going to a lot of games and um, through various connections, like for nationals games, I usually was able to get in the first or second row. And uh, my cousin, Tommy, who's a, a really funny guy, one of the most charismatic people that I know, uh, and one of my best friends since, uh, you know, we're four or five years old. My cousin, Tommy, is really plugged in. And I mean, White House, Congress, Senate, the Pope, like, I, I'm not making this up. My cousin is plugged in at all levels on this planet. So uh, anyway, my cousin had season tickets to both the Mets and the Yankees. And uh, a couple of times we went to see the Mets up at Chase Stadium and we end up like in the first couple of rows. Well, I, I bring my Nikon D50 out and their day games. They're really well lit. I ended up with some really good pictures. And again, you don't need pro level stuff to shoot baseball if you're that close. You just need lots and lots of light. For people who might be new to photography, when you see somebody at a baseball game or a football game and they've got the bazooka-sized ginormous lens, that is not necessarily getting you the magnification that you cannot get on uh, what you would buy at like Best Buy, but it allows you to get that sort of magnification and freeze the action in low light. Those right. lenses are ginormous because they're giant light buckets. And the more light that you can get in, in the, like a, a night game, the, the easier you can, you can freeze the action. But for these day games, it was very easy for me to get really sharp, cool pictures. So I put a couple of them up in my um, Sirius XM office. And it was XM at that time. This is pre-merger with Sirius. And uh, a fellow by the name of Chuck Dickman was the baseball programmer and liaison for us with Major League Baseball at that time. And, and, and Chuck, he and I are still friends. He's a great guy. He sees the pictures. And he goes, man, these are great. Where did you get these? And I said, oh, I, I took them. These are my pictures. And he said, um, hey, I got a question for you. 
Would you go shoot baseball for us? Because we need baseball images. I can get you on the field for any game, anywhere Major League Baseball. And I'm like, Jesus. is there more than one answer to that question? Because I'm right. pretty sure that yes is the oh, only one. That sucks. So <laughs> I end up, um, I know. And, and, you know, just as a baseball fan, down on the field, you're like, right? can I curse with you guys? Is it okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Holy fuck. <laughs> and, um, you know, I end up shooting some Nationals games and some um, some Orioles games. So uh, I, I shoot a day game uh, for the Orioles. Uh, and this is the first time I'm shooting. And I, I go to walk down into the uh, the first base pit, photo pit. And there's uh, a guy who later became a friend, uh, a great photographer by the name of Mark Goldman. Goldmine Enterprises or Goldmine Photography is his company. And he's a brilliant photographer, particularly with sports and a really good guy. Big rock and roll fan, big Frank Zappa fan, big Tom Waits fan. Uh, anyway, he is the first person I encounter as I'm walking into the pit and I'm there hours before the game to kind of, you know, find out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. And I said, hey, my name's Lou Brutus. It's nice to meet you. Uh, hey, it's my first game. Any pointers? And he looked at me dead serious and said, know where the ball is at all times. <laughs> and I like, Haha, hey, that's pretty fine. He said, dude, see this? And he points and he had a V-shaped scar on his face. Uh -huh. He said, that was a Terry Pendleton line drive. I took to my face. I was in a coma for two days. Dude, know where the ball is at all times. And uh, th that's when it sort of realized, I sort of realized that, you know, you really have to be on your toes. And I I've gotten dinged. I mean, I've shot hundreds of baseball games and I've gotten uh, whacked uh, a few times. Nothing terribly serious. Uh, my friend Mitch Layton, who's another great sports photographer and had been team photographer for the Nationals for many years, he um, we were shooting a game. I think it was the Nationals at the Orioles in Camden Yards, and he was facing the pitcher this way. The batter is over here and a line drive foul crushed his hand in between the ball and the camera and his, the bones were sticking out of the end of his fingers and ah. stuff. And he was, it, it messed him up pretty bad. He's doing fine now. I mean, but you know, he was in a lot of pain and, and had difficulty shooting as you might imagine for uh, some yeah. weeks. Oh so anyway, God. so that was the end of the 2007 season that I began to do that. And for the night games, I rented some equipment because I, I, I just knew I, I can't shoot night games. This crap I got, you know, uh, and I thought point, I really, really liked Icon it. And now? Like, yes, I'm shooting Nikon since I picked up the D50. And part of that was I was very so happy with the Canon EOS Rebel. <laughs> it, it's a great camera. And the, and those um, sort of lower level, like the, the, the not that they're bad cameras, but when you compare them to the pro level stuff, um, the EOS Rebel and um, the Nikon equivalent, those are really forgiving cameras because if you put them on basic settings, the camera essentially knows what you want to do and does a fairly good job for beginning photographers. Uh, but then of course I, I, I realized I had to learn how to shoot manually and I do everything, man, everything is manual at all times, even in concerts, which is really quite frankly, a pain in the ass, excuse me, as you all know, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you get somebody like Rob zombie, who, you know, if, if you were, epileptic and i'm not trying to be funny here there's so many strobes and flashes and stuff it's crazy and the lights are changing every tenth of a second you know mm -hmm. so uh, any anyway just to wrap up um 
Chuck liked the pictures. I loved getting the pictures. So the following season, he got me a league-level photographer's pass. Good for any game, anywhere. Walk down on the field. Go where you want. Don't phone ahead. Just walk in. And uh, at that point, I I knew I needed uh, good cameras. So I got a pair of... um, Was it Nikon D200s or 300s? At that point, and a bevy of, you know, I got a 300 2.8 and a 70 to uh, a 200 2.8. And uh, I knew I could shoot baseball with those. Uh, and then several years after that, I wanted to upgrade. So I got uh, a pair of Nikon D4S, uh, all new lenses. Again, the 300, the, the 24 to 70 to 70 to 200. I, I now use uh, uh, a one uh, kind of super wide angle. And I just got for my birthday a... Uh, the Nikon 8 to 15 full fisheye, which I've mostly uh, so far been using for astrophotography. I'd like to shoot like the space station going overhead. Uh, and I just used it for the Geminid meteor shower and got some, um, some cool pictures with that. Uh, actually a space station picture. I got a couple of months ago. Uh, I uh, read up to see where the path was going to be, where the uh, ISS was going to transit the moon. So the uh, um, I had the fish eye, so it's a 360 all the way around horizon, horizon. The moon is here, and the space station came from the middle of the frame and passed right over the moon. And it's like a four-minute exposure, so the stars kind of move, but the moon stays in place pretty much. And uh, the ISS is just a straight line across the entire uh, frame. Uh, it, it, it's sort of a very specialized lens, but if you have particular things you can do with it, it's pretty cool. So anyway, that, that's how I ended up with sort of the fab gear and uh, more and more, um, you know, bands were just letting me uh, uh, come out and shoot. Uh, or inviting me to the photo pit. And, you know, there's a number of bands that I travel with and I'll get a bunk on the bus. And, uh, you know, that's the most fun. And then you just go out and shoot. And the good thing about that, the helpful thing about that is once you go to a tour, if you go to five shows in a week, you know where the lighting cues are, you know who's going to be where at particular times. Things, Those things change because everybody's moving around, but you have a general idea of the ebb and flow of the show song to song. So if you know at this particular point, Randy from Lamb of God is going to do one of his frog leaps out to the stage left side. You can position yourself and get him coming right. At, you know, there's a million different things you can do. So sorry to ramble so much, but I'm filled with black coffee. So... <laughs> No, we appreciate the story. This is great information. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have a ver- you know someone with your access and your experience and all that stuff. It's really nice to hear your war stories. You know, we're we're all venue photographers, so we've seen a wide variety of type of acts come through, but we're very limited on what we can do for those acts and what we can do for the venue. So it's nice to see the you know your perspective on this as well. So really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I I've been going to concerts since uh i had just turned 14 years old and actually the uh, the opening chapter of the book is entitled the time i attended my first concert and threw up on carlos sanchez <laughs> and uh my my older sister patty and her boyfriend at the time carlos sanchez took me to see black sabbath and ted nugent and uh the chapter the, the rest of the chapters are from my professional life but this is sort of the the sort of uh, set up autobiographical chapter and uh, I had the flu and really shouldn't have gone, but didn't want to miss my first concert. Uh, so I go to the show and in the excitement, 
I think it would be a really good idea, flu and all, to down an entire bottle of Boone's Farm strawberry wine in one throw. Pass out, miss Black Sabbath, and um, uh, wake up in time to leave and start power vomiting all over Madison Square Garden. Can I show you the illustration from it? Please. Please. (laughs) Sure. There, there's an illustration for each chapter, and it's done by my friend Alan McBain. And uh, for folks who follow me and have followed my career, uh, Alan does uh, most of my graphic arts because uh, you know I, you know, you you need to sort of have all sorts of physical presence, especially with online. Uh, so Alan uh, and I have done a ton of things together. He's done album covers for my band Dead Shembecklers and Christmas cards. Uh oh vomiting chapter or this is one of the vomiting chapters (laughs) and there's me throwing up on carlos's arm you know i've done readings from this chapter online i do book readings from time to time since i haven't been able to do my book tour this year carlos has showed up on some of them you know so uh and i'll show you one other one other vomiting one um the book the chapters do not roll out in uh uh chronological order it's like if we were at the bar hanging out and i was telling stories um you know they just come out every which way um the final chapter um is about covering live aid as a kid and uh uh crap where the hell is it it's my book you think i'd be able to find this (laughs) uh there's robert plant hitting on my wife but that's not the he really did. He, How'd that go? <laughs> Your best friend, Robert Plant. You know, hello, hello, and she's like, oh, you know, and I'm looking, I'm looking like Joe the Dope, you know. So anyway, the last chapter is the time I rained vomit down upon the biggest concert in history, and that's me puking out of the helicopter at Live Aid, and I literally puked on a hundred thousand people through the. Uh, it wasn't quite like Alan illustrated it. It was more of a like a little slit of a window because you, you can't have big open windows in helicopters right. apparently um so i had a uh, i started to puke on the inside of the helicopter and let me tell you something about helicopter pilots they don't like when you puke on the inside of their <laughs> helicopters especially because it was a glass nose helicopter so i'm puking and like covering up the view you know so uh anyway so uh, do we mind if we talk about the book writing process a little bit? Yeah, I'm talk about whatever you want. Uh, um, you know, originally the um, the book, I knew I wanted to write a memoir or memoirs and, and just filled with crazy rock and roll stories. You know, there's one chapter in there, the time our tour bus ran over a guy on the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, there's another chapter uh, entitled, the time I went to the Arctic and got in a mosh pit with a bunch of kids in polar bear fur while Metallica sang about sodomizing a goat. And that's about going with Metallica up to the Molson Ice Polar Beach Party in the Arctic, the uh, the uh, Inuit village of Tuk Tuk. And they, they closed the set with uh, it's a uh, lyrically it's a pretty heavy song. It's called So What? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's by an old pub punk band called the Anti-Nowhere League. And they put it on their first Garage Days uh, cover song EP. So anyway, I knew I wanted to write a book or books with all these kind of crazy, funny stories. I, I didn't want it to be 
a nasty book, and I, I certainly could have written about who nasty I saw. book you wrote about vomit. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't mind me looking bad in my own book or looking like a dope or, or you know, I, I don't mind subjecting myself to that sort of thing in the book because it's all sort of funny and good natured. Um, I did not want to write a book where, hey, I saw so and so cheat on his wife, or I saw this oh, yeah. person shooting drugs, or like. Uh, and man, I'm doing this shit for 40 years. I've seen all sorts. I, I could do 10 of those books, but I don't want to be an asshole. Uh, right. I, I wanted to write a book that was kind of fun, but still gives people a very strong idea of what the music business and the rock and roll business is actually like behind the scenes. So ho hopefully I, uh, uh, I accomplished that. But um, uh, originally I wanted uh, to do a book before any sort of memoir thing. Uh, of all of my concert well, music, but primarily concert memorabilia. Because again, I've uh, attended more than 3000. I say music events other than concerts, because some of it is, you know, I've hosted, you know, I'll host an artist confidential with um, God, I don't know, James Taylor, uh, you know, and he performs, but is that really a concert? Well, I wouldn't call it a concert, even though there's a small audience. So 3000 music events, most of them being concerts. Uh, and I've kept pretty much every ticket stub, backstage pass, laminate, poster, set list. I've got stuff covered in signatures. I have my loose estimate is over 10,000 pieces in the collection. Uh, if you count everything individually, all the stubs and guitar picks and everything else. Uh, and I would love to do a like a big coffee table book of all that with, with maybe little uh, short paragraph explanation uh, for each item or on each page. And uh, I, I, you know, eventually I'll get that done, I hope. Um, but for now, I've already outlined a second Sonic Warrior book because I left out a lot of stories. Uh, one chapter uh, will be entitled The Time I Turned Down a Private Audience with His Holiness Pope John Paul II in <laughs> order to spend time with Ozzy Osbourne. And oh uh, I, 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 I had I was invited to a private lunch at the Vatican with Pope John Paul II. But I had to fly down to Texas to be with Ozzy at the opening of an Ozfest. Oh and, uh, you know, actually, and the invite came from my cousin who I mentioned earlier, my cousin, Tommy, um, wow. who's been a guest at the Vatican. And like he stays at the Vatican, you know, and he said, hey, I got a surprise for you. I'm flying you to Rome in a couple of weeks. We're going to have lunch with the Pope. And I'm like, Tommy, I got to go to Texas for Ozzy. We and need to uh, meet Tommy. So I, I turned down. I turned <laughs> down the trip. A quick addendum to that story. Years later, um, I. Uh, uh, I go to shoot a game at uh, Washington Nationals in D.C. because uh, I, I have an office in D.C., so I'm, I'm often in D.C., and that's an easy place for me to uh, to go and shoot baseball. And uh, my cousin uh, is friends with uh, a number of the Washington Nationals. So I get to the game that day. It was a, a, a Saturday afternoon, I think. And before BP, like it's super early in the morning, um, and uh, I get there. My cousin's already down on the field, and he's talking to a priest, and, um, you know, uh, the, the priest is there. He gives like a benediction or a prayer before the game for the players who want it. And uh, so I walk out my cousin. Hey, Louie, Louie, hey, come here. We're all from Newark, New Jersey. You know, hey, Louie, how, how are you doing? So my cousin calls me over and uh, uh, he says to the priest, hey, this is my cousin I told you about. And the priest the looks at Tommy to and then Aussie. looks at me and he goes, <laughs> and he looks back at Tommy. He goes, 
this guy really exists. Like that's a true story. <laughs> and, and my cousin kind of just nods his head. And the priest looks at me, he goes, you turn down an audience with his holiness, John Paul II for Ozzy. And I went, yes, I did. And the priest just backs away. Crossing oh as, he, as he steps back. True. So honest to God, true story. <laughs> you know, and the priest, the priest was nice after that, but he, but he definitely was like just a bit standoffish after that. You know, it was a, I think I'd ask you to out. do uh, go home and do 10 hail Mary. Uh, yeah. I could hear my Catholic upbringing. I'm like, dude, even yeah, I, was, I, was, I was waiting Aussie for him for to, you know, <laughs> you know, the power of Christ compels oh, you. Yeah, see, the power. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to the book stuff, uh, you've talked about how, how it got started, especially with the, the kick in the pants from um, from Corey Taylor, sort of. Um, I, I kind of want to know what the duration was from you finally getting it to its published. What was that like? What's that process like? You know, um, it was just finding the time to do it because between all of my broadcast stuff I do and all the traveling I do and the photography, uh, you know, trying to find time to write a book was, was a pain in the ass. But each time that I finally got to sit down to write at least the preliminary versions of each chapter went fairly quickly because all of these stories that are in the book, for example, like, like the story I just told you, it's not in the book, but I've told that story a hundred times. So it was very much just me sort of, narrating to myself what I needed to write. And that would be the first draft of the chapter. And then I would go in and tighten it up. And I might add some background facts like, uh, you know, you mentioned Corey. There's a chapter where um, I'm dressed as Hunter S. Thompson. I had shown up at the end of the Subliminal Verses tour in Madison, Wisconsin. Surprise the guys. Uh, wanted to be there for the uh, the end of the tour. I'd been there when they were recording the record out in uh, out in L.A., and uh, had had been to, you know, dozens of shows on the tour and wanted to be there for the last one. Uh, and Corey and I and, and Clown, too, are big Hunter S. Thompson fans. Uh, anyway, Corey wanted to prank Shadows Fall, who were the first band on that night. Um, uh, Lamb of God was also on the bill. Uh, so Corey, long story short, um, but you can read the chapter. Corey goes out almost buck naked, except uh, around his privates. He's got a lot of duct tape wrapped and he's got uh, his mask on. So he goes out prancing like a pony with his pigtails bouncing uh, right in the middle of Shadows Fall, one of their opening songs. And, you know, this is the Alliant Energy Arena and it's sold out. There's, you know, like 10,000 people there and they go crazy. And then from behind me, I'm standing off stage. Uh, Corey's wife at the time said, OK, Hunter, you're on. And she shoves me on stage after him. So again, I'm dressed head to toe like Hunter Thompson, got the glasses, cigarette holder, the fly swatter. So I start chasing after Corey and uh, swatting at this enormous duct tape dong with the uh, with the fly swatter. And uh, we're, we're out there probably only for a minute. It seemed longer at the time. And uh, uh, then the Wisconsin State Police showed up. And uh, <laughs> the rest of the story is about evading detection and arrest because they were not happy. Apparently it's the government has some sort of hand or finger in the facility. I don't know, but there were state troopers there and they apparently don't like naked people or people like <laughs> Thompson interrupting the paid concerts. So that's gotta be. Uh, so that's a, oh, actually here. I, you want me to find that? You want me to find that illustration? That, there, there's an illustration for you. <laughs> um, and again, Alan does such a great job with the, uh, well, here's the uh, here's the illustrator. I'll show you this one first. 
this is for the uh, the Molson Ice Polar Beach Party with Metallica up in uh, Tuk Tuk Tuk. Uh, and that is, in fact, me and Courtney Love down at the bottom. Uh, Hole was one of the opening <laughs> bands. And uh, for, for longtime radio listeners of mine, the seal with the cigar, uh, Alan threw him in for fun. Uh, I used to do uh, a character on the air that was an alcoholic talking seal called Sammy the Seal. And uh, Alan threw that in for fun. Uh, let me get to this Corey chapter. Oh, here we go. The time I escaped the Wisconsin State Police and their fake phallus felony enforcement. And uh, there's Corey and I on stage. There you go. There's your boy. Who wouldn't want to buy this book now? Huh? <laughs> that should be the cover, Gosh right? almighty. <laughs> you know, I uh, my mom and dad passed away years ago, as I said. And I miss them terribly. And they, they, my mother was an antique book dealer and, and uh, uh, she and my dad were both avid readers. Um, so they, they really would have gotten a charge out of the fact that uh, I have my own book out. Um, my aunt, my aunt Min, whom I love dearly, my mom's younger sister, you know, she was very excited for the book coming out. And I said, okay, I'm going to send you a copy. And, and I, I put it in the, the mail. And uh, I said to my aunt, Min, I'm like, now, listen, you don't necessarily have to open it. <laughs> <laughs> got the book you can open the front it's signed to you i mentioned you in the thank yous and the acknowledgements at the end but uh you might want to stay away from some of the stories and the illustrations so uh you know because uh she's not used to you know to the best of my knowledge she's never chased anybody around with a duct tape phallus with a fly swatter dressed as hunter thompson so you know oh my god we, we can't all live that kind of life uh, yeah that's pretty thankfully crazy. thankfully pretty crazy yeah so so with the book so you 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 uh, i'm assuming you write all the stories um you send it to you know editors and they chop it up or something like that yeah what, yeah that you know i i write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and get it to where i think it's supposed to be then it would go to the editor who says hey this part's good i would change this grammatically this is weird and uh you know they did nips and tucks on it but there wasn't any really sort of wholesale changes because again i've told the story so many times right they came fairly quickly and, they, and they're just sort of laid out where the story goes from point a to b to c to d it's not like i'm writing a novel and i need to set up characters and subtext and all that it's just like hey we got fucked up i threw up on the bus and you know and and then we were at live aid or you know whatever whatever the story might be and your second, and so the, the the next book you have coming, how far along are you with that? I've outlined it. So I, uh, I've i listed all of the stories that will go into it, all of the chapter titles, and then it's a matter of writing it. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually hoping over the holiday season to, uh, to at least bang out the preliminary chapters. And uh, I'll probably do the Pope John Paul uh, Aussie story. Um, uh, another story I really should have put in the first book, but I didn't. Uh, I'm not sure the exact chapter name yet, but something uh, uh, to the effect of the time Eddie Van Halen named his band after me. Yep. And uh, that was uh, that was about the Lou Brutus experience, which uh, Eddie Van Halen put a, a charity a gig uh, band together for uh, Jason Becker, great guitar shredder and a dear friend of Eddie's, uh, who is still with us, by the way, uh, Jason yep. Becker, uh, who suffers from uh, ALS. And uh, uh, I canceled vacation. Uh, for my wife's 30th birthday, uh, we were going to go away to an island, but they asked me to stay back in Chicago and host this show. And uh, uh, when Eddie found out what I did, he said, uh, hey, I'm going to name the band after you for it. So uh, 
So they called it the Lou Brutus experience. It's a lot more involved of a story and there'll be more deets in the chapter, but that's another one that'll uh, yeah. definitely go in. Have you uh, had any more recent uh, um, time with Eddie at all? No. Um, you know, I didn't want to be that guy. Hey, you named a band after me. Can I come backstage? Because um, <laughs> yep. I didn't have any direct business with like him. Somebody we know. <laughs> What's that say again? <laughs> like somebody we know. <laughs> but uh, He's talking about me. He's talking about me. <laughs> oh, why? What happened? Nothing. No, that, that's my never, He would definitely like, hey, do that. Me? He'd yeah. 100% do that. Get the Jason Lavasser experience. Hi, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Please name it after me. me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would have liked to have seen him again. And I just did a, a nice long form interview with uh, with Wolfgang, with uh, Wolfie yep. Yep. Van Halen for uh, Hard Drive and Hard Drive XL. And uh, he and I, I think, I know for a fact we met sort of professionally when he was on that Mark Tremonti tour uh, for the first time uh, as that was a hard drive live tour uh, that was sponsored by my show. And uh, uh, Wolf was called in to play in the band at the last minute uh, via, I think Tremonti called somebody in seven dust may have been Morgan Rose and Wolf was in Jersey with Morgan at that it's sort of a long involved story. Yeah. Uh, but I know I saw him on that tour, but I think he and I met, when he was just a little kid and I was backstage broadcasting from uh, Van Halen shows, um, you know, Van Halen back in the day, even though they were the biggest band in the world at that time, they were awesome to radio. When they came into town, they did all the radio station interviews and visits and backstage meet and greets. And uh, they were extremely accessible, uh, which certainly helped Van Halen, but it also, you know, it helped all these great rock stations around the country. And uh, sometimes I don't know that all rock stars do as much of that as they could. Uh, I think a great example of um, an artist and uh, their radio genre uh, stations having um, sort of a symbiotic relationship goes back to the 1990s when, um, oh, God, country artist, sorry, uh, name, tip of my tongue. Um, Fuck. Name some big country artists. Garth, 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 Steve, you know Garth Brooks. Tim. Garth uh, Brooks. He was Garth yeah. Brooks. Garth Brooks, when he was blowing up, um, you know, he could have just rested on his laurels. He really treated country radio very, very well. And on his off days from tour, he would be on the bus with, you know, an early portable phone, cold calling uh radio stations uh, country stations around the country and not just the great big radio stations he was calling you know froggy 101 in you know bumfuck tennessee <laughs> and um uh he would go on the air with these djs and stuff and uh you know it certainly helped his sales and it helped his concert tickets but it also helped all of these country stations all around the country you know even some small stations like oh my god garth brooks was on with the dj today and the dj he's friends with garth brooks and it just makes the radio stations made the radio stations look and sound good yeah. uh and and that was part of the reason i think anyway for the uh the explosion of country radio back then it was the the, the real uh okay. sort of handcrafted relationships between garth brooks and all of these radio stations around the U.S. Pretty amazing stuff. Our, but again, back to the point, Van Halen was uh, was very much like that uh, back in the 1990s on those Sammy Hagar tours and all those great records. 
our our venue is is a big in the country music and they're very tight in Nashville and, and and I've said all along that if it wasn't for Garth Brooks all of this bro country stuff that we see out there now wouldn't wouldn't exist because he's the one that got everything going in that direction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without question. Both the good and the bad. Uh I think um I agree. You know, I mean personally, I when I I don't listen to a lot of country music, I do prefer sort of the old-timey stuff like Marty Robbins. Uh, songs like El Paso or uh, 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 Water or um, Big Iron, uh, another uh, great sort of cowboy tune from uh, Marty Robbins. And and those tunes, interestingly enough, uh, I did not originally learn from the uh, the country artists. I learned them via the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead. The Grateful Dead, uh, particularly mm-hmm. Bobby Weir, would uh, uh, perform these songs. El Paso was in the... Uh, the Grateful Dead's repertoire for decades. Uh, they, uh, uh, Bobby also on, um, I think the first Kingfish album, which was one of his side projects, covered Big Iron. Uh, but El Paso, they would sometimes do like 20, 25 minute versions of it as only the Grateful Dead could. Uh, but yeah, they they always love that country Western stuff. Uh, and it was a big influence on albums like uh, um, Working Man's Dead and uh, to maybe a little bit lesser of an extent, uh, American Beauty. Can we backtrack to some of the technical stuff of the, of the book? You did your own audio for the for the audiobook, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts, and a lot of the different guys have their own books, and they all talk about the same thing of how the the publishing company has somebody do the voice, the reading of the book for them, and then you know later on they become big enough that they can go back and get the rights back, and 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 do the book themselves. How did you manage to get that? done up front so it was just yours well you know the um the publisher reached part of the deal you know i've got a lit agent and the lit agent sends the sample chapters out to the publishers and the publishers respond back you go back and forth and uh you know part of the um understanding the entire time was hey when we do an audiobook it would only make sense for me to do they're my stories. I'm a professional announcer. I talk for a living. I, you know, these are essentially written versions of stories I've been saying out loud for decades. So this is probably the best example or a very good example of, of, uh, you know, a book that should be narrated by its author, but initially they were going to get somebody else, but I, I didn't take it as a slight against me. It was just, the audio company going, yeah, we always get narrators. Authors never do this stuff themselves. They just assumed. And uh, we immediately, you know, went back and said, Hey fellas, maybe, (laughs) maybe Lou should read this. And they were like, Oh, duh. Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, I cut it over the course of um, I think three days in New York. Was it late last year or very early this year? I think it was very early this year. I, I, I forget the timeline of it. But, um, yeah, I, I just went up to New York for a few days and uh, did not bring my camera. Uh, maybe I brought one camera. Normally, when I go to New York, I bring a couple of cameras, and I like to wander around all night and just get pictures of whatever great, I can find. Yeah. However, I was really afraid of staying out late and, you know, getting sick, which would have been bad for the reading. So I thought, you know, and I'm going to hole up mostly in the hotel and, you know, eat lozenges, you know, so it wasn't that, uh, wasn't my usual New York trip, uh, I'm afraid. 
Hey, thanks for watching part one of our interview with Lou Brutus. Make sure you go check out his book and check out Hard Drive Radio as well. For our guests, go to our YouTube channel or talesfromthepit.net. Till then, we'll see you next time.